Welcome to the Tech Ed Podcast, where we visit with leaders who are shaping, innovating, and disrupting technical education. People who are not afraid to think differently, not afraid to try something new, all with the goal of securing the American dream for the next generation of STEM and workforce talent. Welcome back to the Tech Guide Podcast, where we love nothing more than to talk with people who are taking really innovative approaches, really unique approaches, sometimes even disruptive approaches to the world of education. And so much so that when I see or I hear about or I read about somebody who's doing exactly that, I become absolutely obsessed with getting them on the show so that we can help share their stories with our audience. This episode is an absolute result of one of those obsessions. I first learned about the institution that is led by today's guests on an episode of 60 Minutes. When we talk about a unique approach to education, Deep Springs College is exactly that. This is hands-on higher ed, like literally like you have never, ever seen it. I've been looking forward to this episode for a long time. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the studio of the Tech Ed Podcast, the president of Deep Springs College, Dr. Sue Darlington. Sue, thanks so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. So I am going to begin with what I think is probably the most loaded question (laughs) that I've ever asked a guest, and that is, what makes Deep Springs College a unique institution of higher learning? <laughs> you can debate whether it's fully unique, because I think a lot of parts of what we do is, are done by other, other institutions, but it's the combination of things. We really focus on learning rather than education, and there are three pillars that combine or what help the students learn. It's the academic pillar, the labor pillar, and the governance pillar. And the students need to engage in all three of these for Deep Springs to really work. And the academic is straightforward classes, you know, the the, the regular studying that you'll find at any college. Labor, you'll find at a few other colleges as well. The work colleges, we're a working ranch, and the students are required to spend at least 20 hours a week doing some kind of a labor assignment. And that can be milking the cows, it can be building fences, cooking, cleaning the main room, there's gardening, there's a whole set of of labor assignments. The one that's more unusual is the self-governance pillar. The students are engaged in governing the student body themselves. I'm not even allowed in the dorm. There's one dorm for all 26 students, and they decide what happens with the student body. But they also do committee work, which includes Uh, the curriculum committee interviewing and recommending faculty to me. um, They do the applications, so they're doing most of the work for bringing in the next round of students. Um, They monitor each other. So that's what makes it unique is the combination of these three, three things on a very isolated ranch where they live side by side with all the staff and faculty. You know, I can tell you in my days of college, I wasn't doing anything like milking cows. I wasn't cleaning fences. I wasn't doing any gardening. That's absolutely for sure. So just as we begin our conversation, our listeners already recognize how unique your institution is. You mentioned the fact that you've got 26 students. I'm a graduate of Marquette University. I think they had between undergraduate and graduate students, about 11,000 on campus when I was going to school some time ago. Uh, So 26 students, small institution. And these are really, really unique people, are they not, Sue? As I was learning a little bit more about who your students are, I mean, these are students that 
literally they've got options. They could go to school almost anywhere. You know, a number of them, maybe all of them would be eligible for attending exclusive Ivy league schools right out of high school. And instead they're coming to this ranch in this remote part of California and, and spending their time with you. So let, let's start by talking about what kinds of individuals actually pursue an educational pathway like this one. They, they are driven. <laughs> they are independent. Uh, they're highly intelligent. They, like you said, they often get into schools like Harvard or Yale or Stanford and make the choice to come to Deep Springs for their first two years. They're only here for two years and okay. then they transfer. Um, they are, you know, they want to be part of um, what they see as an intentional community that's focused on learning. Hmm. And uh, yeah, they, they, challenge they have strong they're pretty willful they can be pretty willful uh very creative uh, and those are some of the general things but like you said each individual brings something unique as well i mean they're they're very much individuals and i get to know every single one of them very well so so 26 students at any given point in time how many applications do you get in a typical year Last year, we had over 250 applications for 13 slots. Wow, 250 applications for 13 slots. And it, and it sounds like the students actually have a role in deciding who gets to come. Is that right? They run the committee that goes through everything. It designs the questions that goes up. There are at least two staff and faculty members on the committee and nine or 10 students who are reading all the applications or and they decide what the characteristics are they're looking for ranking the, the applications, deciding the second round, and then deciding the 13 that will come in. They make a recommendation to me, uh, but I try and pay attention along the way. And I it would be pretty rare for me to have a reason to not accept what they give me. Got it. So 250 applications, 13 students that are fortunate enough to make their way to your institution. You know, you, you can't read the paper. You can't you can't get online these days without hearing about escalating costs of higher education. Uh, we, we can't avoid these debates around, you know, about around student let debt and, and, and loan forgiveness. I mean, it's just the, you know, the tuition, the cost of higher education, uh, you know, it's an issue and it's an issue that needs to be addressed almost regardless of which side of the political spectrum you're on. I think everybody agrees on that. So another loaded question for you, talk to us about how the tuition at Deep Springs compares to a typical institution. There is no tuition at Deep Springs. That's amazing. Every student gets a full scholarship. That's that's absolutely amazing. So they they come for two years. This is this incredible learning environment. We're going to talk a little bit more about the academics as our discussion goes on. Absolutely no tuition as they're making that choice and 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 choosing that route. So I, I guess maybe the other the other question is then how is the experience funded at Deep Springs? It's funded in two ways. We have we have our investments, the the endowment. Um, it was set up a hundred years ago by a fairly rich industrialist, LL Nunn, and he set up a trust to make sure it remained free. I think the trust, you know, it's the original money is gone. There were some rough times along the way. Sure. But you know, we have really we have really loyal alumni and supporters. And so right now, I'd say about 55, 60% of our annual operating budget comes out of the investments hmm. and the rest is fundraised and okay. it's through the generous donations of our supporters. 
fascinating. And given that philanthropy and that desire to continue to support what it is that you're doing, I think that's a testament to the experience that those students had as they were working their way through their two years at Deep Springs, that they would care enough about the institution that they would come back and help support that experience for the people that are coming after. So just an incredible story. I did a little bit of research on LLN as I was preparing for the uh, for the episode. What, what an incredible individual he was as well. And to, and to come up with this, this concept a hundred years ago, so quite a lot of time has passed since the founding of the institution, uh, yet you still refer to Deep Springs as a experimental college. So not too many experiments. I mean, to me, you experiment with something, you prove a, a hypothesis or a thesis, and then, and then, you, and then you implement it. 100 years later, you are still calling it experimental. How does the nature of the program make every year an experiment for every single student? Well, given that it's a two-year experience for the students, so every year half the student body turns over um, and every single student who comes has to figure out what they're doing here, how they're going to negotiate the demands of this school. The, the, The combination of those three things is pretty serious and not necessarily um easy. (laughs) And then each student body comes together and they raise the questions that they want to discuss and debate. Um, So we have an isolation policy, for example, where the students have to stay on campus during term unless they have, um, you know, a medical reason, of course, they can leave. But otherwise, they need permission from the rest of the student body to go. Um, And they debate what does isolation mean? What does it mean in the age of Internet? What does it mean Um, when we're so far away from everybody anyway. Um, So there's questions about, you know, the style of teaching that we do. What does it mean to say we're seminar style? And there's a lot of debates that happen over that. So I think the experiment is that every student who comes is coming in fresh and they might have ideas, but they don't really know what they're getting into until they get here. Same with the faculty, um, same with the staff. In that sense, yeah, we have the guidelines that none set up, but we're all constantly debating them, discussing them, interpreting them, um, reading his letters. The constitution of the college are, is made up of his letters okay. to the student body. Hmm. And what is the, what do they mean? How do we in, implement them now? So that's, I think the experiment is partly that everybody who comes is experimenting and also because our model is still unusual and, you know, people come and figure out what is, what is higher education here? So, so these letters have been around for a hundred years. They form the constitution of your institution. And it sounds like they're still relevant that those tenants on which the the college was founded over a century ago, they're, they're still relevant to the student body today. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, every student who comes in is handed what we call the gray book, which is this collection of letters and in one of their first student body meetings, which they hold every Friday night, I saw from that. eight o'clock till whenever. <laughs> yeah. Mo- by the way, most college students are not holding meetings on Friday nights at eight o'clock. Just exactly. so you know, I'm sure you're aware of that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so they'll come in and they read the gray book and they have to then, they, they discuss it. They, they debate it. Interesting. And while we're on the topic of Friday nights, no alcohol on campus either. Is that correct? Nope. That's that's one of the ground rules is no alcohol or or, um, non-prescription drugs and then the isolation policy. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. So we, we started by talking a little bit about these three pillars and I want to, I want to dive into those in a little bit more detail. The first pillar being academics. And you touched a little bit on the academic experience for a student at Deep Springs, but let's go a little bit deeper on that. What does that actually feel like? You mentioned, you know, what is, what is seminar education or seminar learning, I think was the, the term or close to it that you use. So tell us a little bit about what is the academic side of the experience for these 26 students? It starts with the fact that their curriculum committee is picking the faculty and also picking the courses. So I'm teaching this this term, this semester. I had to submit three course proposals to the student body. They asked me a bunch of questions about these three courses, and then they they vote which course I'm I'm going to teach. They decide. Um, and they do that with every single faculty member. So they're already invested in what the subjects are, okay. uh, what the, the, the topics of the classes. The classes are rarely bigger than 11 people, hmm. usually smaller. My class has four. Wow. And it's it's great because I, I've had a class of four a long, long time ago, my previous institution. And there were days where it was really hard to keep the conversation going for 80 minutes. <laughs> not in, not with these students. They They read really closely hmm. when you give them assignments they come into class prepared with their questions with their ideas and they run with it and i'm learning along with them because i don't know what they're going to ask i don't know what they're going to come up with um the connections that they make even in their science classes which have to be structured a bit differently or a math class has to be structured differently it's still very much student driven and they're working side by side with the faculty in whatever they're, whatever they're learning. They're, they're learning it together. They're, they know the faculty have experience and knowledge, but they're also validating theirs. It's gotta be incredibly rewarding as a member of faculty to feel like you're on this learning journey along with these students. And, and as we mentioned earlier, not just any students, but some of the best and brightest uh, in the in the United States. And so just a, a great experience for you. You talk about working alongside of faculty as you're going through the curriculum. Working isn't just academic, right? The, that second pillar in working in, and again, going back to, as I suggested, the the 60 Minutes episode that, that got me interested in your model in the first place. I mean, just watching students, who they're, they're riding horses, they're feeding cows, they're putting horseshoes on, on animals. I mean, it's just that that part of it was fascinating. 20 hours a week of the labor component, that second pillar that you mentioned, Sue. So, so tell us about that labor experience, not just about what are they doing, but what did the students get out of that experience of that second pillar? They're learning responsibility. They're learning that you know, they're gaining practical skills, uh, some of which they'll never use again. I think they may never milk another cow, but they're, they're really learning how, in many cases, it's teams that are doing the labor. There's a few solitary uh, assignments like orderly, keeping the main building clean, but the, the garden team, the farm team, they're, they're teams. And there's a student who will be the, the lead each semester, each term, they all have a staff supervisor who is their mentor in this area, whether it's it's the the chef, the cook that we have that's helping them learn how to cook for 40 people, huh. um, the ranch manager who is who can be really, you know, if you if you make a mistake, it could be serious. It could it's a safety issue. It could it, sure. a cow could die. A machine could fall over. Um, things have to be done right and they have of to course. be done at the right time. And 
they learn by failing. They learn by making the mistakes and having to then correct them. Hopefully they're learning how to hold each other accountable. That You can see that sometimes it works better. Sometimes you can see that's where someone might be struggling. And then we come together and say, how do you, how do you pick up the responsibility? How do you struggle? You don't like cooking? Well, you got to cook. You know, right. How do you learn how to do that? So, and they, they talk about, they transfer that to their academics, that their academics are not just the knowledge of, of what's in the book, mm-hmm. but again, the responsibility to everybody in the classroom for the learning. Well, and great life lessons. I mean, you think about, you know, eventually getting into the workplace and understanding the importance of teamwork, understanding that, yeah, we do learn by failing. I like to say that, you know, successful people are just people that stood up one more time than they got knocked down. And that's a, that's a great life lesson that they're learning through this experience. I love that labor component. And it really, it speaks to how self-sufficient your operation is as well. I mean, is if you've got, you know, there's no dining hall, there's no, you know, cook staff that is just waiting there to feed the students, right? The students are actually preparing the meals themselves, cooking the meals themselves, living with the results, as I understand. Is that right? Absolutely. If the if the cook makes a mistake, they hear about it. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty immediately. <laughs> yeah. And on the weekends, it's not necessarily even the trained, the trained cook, right? The for the student who's assigned to cook, they volunteer and they, they well, they they volunteer, but they all have to take a slot to cook on the weekends. Got for it. the whole community. Yeah, it's fascinating. And and then you think about this, you know, this whole idea of holding each other accountable, which even even as adults, as you know, people that are 20, 30 years into the workforce sometimes struggle with with that and, and being comfortable, you know, calling others out or at least at least asking questions about about performance, redirecting those kind of things. So all of these amazing life lessons that, that students are learning as they go through the experience. And that whole idea of holding each other accountable, I think, speaks to your third pillar as well, which is this whole idea of self-governance. We, we talked about this already. They're meeting on Friday nights. They're, they're talking about, we've talked about, you know, who, get, who gets in. Uh, we've talked about the uh, the curriculum side of it. Uh, who are the faculty members going to be? Imagine being a college student and being able to pick the faculty member as opposed to it being the other way around. Dr. Sue Darlington, president of Deep Springs College, our guest on this episode of the Tech Ed Podcast, having a really unique conversation about a really unique institution. So tell us, are there things that as we look at traditional education, are there aspects of your model that traditional educators should find ways to implement in their uh, institutions? So I think when possible, I mean, it's very hard to make this exact model huge. <laughs> right. It works because it's small. Right. Um, it's sort of a micro college. And we have actually an alum who's founded Thoreau College in Wisconsin, which is, it's a gap year program right now. Interesting. Very into micro colleges and trying to build networks across people that do micro colleges. Um, and there's a few other places that were inspired by Deep Springs and, and, Take, take a model and tweak it. But in terms of a larger institution, um, I think when possible finding ways of building real community within, within the larger education, the larger institution is one way that we can inspire where people have to live together and work together. I mean, you have some of the large universities have honors, excuse me, have honors colleges where they're often residential. You know, the University of Michigan has a residential college. The University sure. of Massachusetts has an honors college. I think those models can move in that direction, especially if they can find ways of giving the students responsibilities outside of the classroom, hmm. where they they really, as we do with with the labor, there are ways of 
of making sure the students have to work together and, and keeping the place running and keeping it being really vibrant. And there's a lot of different ways to do that, but I think that's one aspect that could carry out. Um, and then also the governance model, including students in more of the decision-making processes that any institution does. You know, the big ones might have handful of students who are involved in some way, but to find ways that there's a lot more responsible engagement for the students. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting way of looking at it. You look at so many institutions of higher learning now in the way in which they're they're governed, it's usually that small microcosm of kids that are students, I should say, that are interested in student government, right? And that's always that group of people. And in this case, it's everybody in your organization has that same obligation to be part of the, the governance of the college. So that's great advice for a, a larger and more traditional um, university or college. So lo- love the way that you answered that question. And, and also the idea of creating that real community and that and that community feel for a student as they're working their way through their educational pathways. Speaking of those educational pathways, and I think we've got time for two more questions. You know, the first one, I, I know our audience is curious about these students. They're at Deep Springs for two years. They finished that journey, as we suggested in the intro. These are students that have tons of options, could have easily, or in many of them, gone right into Ivy League universities as they're leaving high school. They choose Deep Springs. They spend their two years with you. What are the what are the pathways? What are the what are the routes that they take when they're done? Where do they go? A lot of them will go to traditional colleges. Ironically, they like to go to ones that have a lot more structure. <laughs> or maybe because they feel like, okay, I've had that. I need something that's a little more structured. Sure. Um, they go to really excellent schools. They go to Swarthmore, Yale, Columbia, you know, Chicago, Reed College. Uh, is not quite as common, but who's me to see a student go to Reed? Bates. I mean, they they go they go all over. Duke is the one that, that loves Deep Springers. Some of them take gap years. A lot, in fact, uh, past couple of years, a lot of students are taking gap years. They, sure, good time to wanna, do it. Yeah, they want to do something else. They want to really think about what they want when they're transferring the more they have a sense of what they want to study the more they're going to be able to finish in two years so sometimes they take take time off to really try something else and then decide where i want to go what do i want to do but i'd say majority of them do we offer an associate's degree some of them do that even right before they transfer to another school um some of them will occasionally some will decide to stop at that point and do something completely different but most do transfer eventually to some other school all kinds of fascinating routes that they take when they're done with their times at deep springs these these young people 18 19 20 years old as probably as naive as all of us were in some ways when we were at that age but yet getting that experience and i've got to believe as they move on to whatever comes next their maturity level when they get there, having had this experience has to be just just so far beyond where they started. It just speaks to the level of academics that, that you're delivering at Deep Springs. And one last question. So we talked about the 18, 19, 20-year-old student. Let's rewind a little bit, maybe 15, 16 years old. It's a, it's a question we love asking all of our guests here on the Tech Ed Podcast. You're a high school sophomore. You've got your whole life in front of you. What advice does Sue Darlington, president of Deep Springs College, have for somebody in that mode of life? My advice is follow your passion, explore. Even when you go to college and you major in something, you're not stuck to that for the rest of your life. It's It should be something you're really excited about that challenges you, pushes you, and then you can use it 
to go in new directions because you'll have the skills that you need rather than the, the knowledge. You can get the knowledge. You can get the knowledge in a lot of ways. But the skills of thinking, questioning, problem solving, working together with other people, you're going to get that way if you're passionate and, and willing to be a risk taker. Absolutely. In some ways, it doesn't matter what college you go to, ultimately, if you're willing to push yourself and take the risks. You know, it's so, it's so funny that you ended the answer with that, because I, as I advise young people who are thinking about what to do after high school and they put so much pressure on themselves about making the perfect choice. And my answer to them is always, there is no perfect choice. You pick a, a route, you pick a path and that's your path. And it absolutely doesn't matter what you didn't pick. What's important is what you did. And now you're on your way through life. So to your point, Sue, yeah, exactly. And what do you, what do you do with it? And and I just think about, I've changed careers seven, eight times since I graduated from high school, since I graduated from college. And, and, and you know, we're long, long, long gone are the days where we, we pick a direction and that, and that's our route. The key is to make sure that you've got these, these great life skills that allow you to follow your passion and explore as you suggest. And that is exactly what you're giving to these 26 students at Deep Springs College and in the, the dozens and hundreds that have come through your program and through your curriculum and your labor and your student governance and all the other great things you're doing. So it's been a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate you taking some time for us today. Oh, thank you. I, I mean, I love talking about Deep Springs because it always gets me thinking. <laughs> <laughs> we can tell how much you love talking about it. You're, you're incredibly articulate and a, and a great guest. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Tech Ed Podcast. If you haven't already, subscribe, leave a review, and if you like this episode, share it with a friend. New episodes launch every Tuesday, so listen in next week.